Welcome to the Holy Soup Podcast, where the church's status quo and sacred cows get rounded up, simmered down, and dished out. And now, here's your chief cook, author, innovator, filmmaker, and founder of Group Publishing, Tom Schultz. Welcome to Holy Soup, where we often question some sacred cows. In the church, a big, fat sacred cow is the 20th century concept of the Sunday morning sermon. Even though it now goes by different names, such as the message time, it remains the same old, same old in almost every church of every kind from coast to coast. It's a 20-minute or 30-minute or 40-minute or longer lecture one person standing in front of a passive audience delivering a prepared one-way speech. It's a big, sacred bovine. (laughs) Whenever I question this particular model of communicating with a congregation, veins start popping out of people's necks. They tell me that the sermon, as we know it at this point at least, is mandated by God himself. That 30-minute lecture slot shall not be tampered with. For many, it's not a question of, is this the most effective means of helping people grapple with a spiritual or biblical truth or learning? It's, it, the question is something else. Uh, how can I continue to defend this form of, of uh, communication? We do know from research that one of the top reasons that people today are leaving the church is a dissatisfaction with this one-way communication model of messaging. Uh, We found in our studies with the Duns, those people who have left the church but not their faith, that they want to be involved somehow in the processing of the message. They want to participate, to discuss, to ask questions, to clarify, to offer their own perspectives. And I'm afraid the Sunday morning experience, today as we know it, simply does not allow for that. Our guest today is Rick Bunshu. He's the pastor of a church in Hawaii, not a bad duty, right? And he's also a popular author, including the new book, Moving Messages, Ideas That Will Revolutionize the Sunday Experience. Rick, when I've mentioned your book uh, to uh, people recently, particularly preachers and teachers, some of them have responded in, in anger, even listening to the title and the subtitle, saying, we don't need to revolutionize anything. The, the people need to shut up and listen to the word of God that his, that his anointed messengers are delivering. So have you heard that, and, and how do you respond? Well, I've never heard that directly to my face about my book. <laughs> Good. I, I've, I've certainly heard that concept over and over again. I mean, people are married to a form. They're married to a methodology. Um, they're married to a tradition, uh, but it's not always helpful. Mm. And where is this uh, coming from in terms of this almost intransigent idea of uh, the message time needs to be this uh, 30 or 40 minute block of one-way communication? Where, where did that come from? Well, I, I think it, I mean, of course, it has a large historical background. I mean, that's, that idea of communicating um, in a monologue has, has been around for a ton of years, um, and we tend, to, we tend to replicate the way we were taught. And uh, it also, I think, comes from other places. I think it comes from a sense of job security. Because really, what does the pastor do all week? I mean, we make jokes here that I work one or two hours a week on Sunday morning. And if you're not getting up in front of people and delivering that monologue, what have you what you've been doing? Um, so it's a way that we, we, uh, we 
we do that. It's also a way we pr- for people to protect, to be the gatekeeper, so that no other ideas besides the ideas that are orthodox in the mind of that particular preacher um, have an opportunity to be shared. So uh, the idea is that um, he's the sponge who's, who's filled up all week long with, um, uh, you know, making sure he's, he's got a clean understanding of, of the concept he wants to, to express, and then um, the people in the audience are merely the recipients of, upon which he squeezes out everything he can from that mm-hmm. week. And so that it's, it comes from a variety of different things. I, I think um, everything from job security to tradition. Mm-hmm. I like uh, what uh, you say early on in your book, where, quoting here, you say, if you've ever driven home from church and drawn a complete blank on the message you've just invested 30 to 45 minutes of your time listening to, here's a bit of good news. You're not alone. Your guilty secret is shared by many. And it may surprise you to know that the experience of coming up empty on your drive home is no longer an occasional event. It's more and more becoming the norm for many churchgoers. Why is that? Why... Do you say that? Why, why is it that this form simply isn't working like we might hope it might? I, I think you have, one has to look at culture and the way information is gathered and retained. And, and retention is, is a large part of the thing that drives me on, on the ideas behind this book. Um, because if you hear something but you don't retain it, what good is it? Mm. Um, I mean, really, it's, it just washes over. And when you live in a culture where you have um, slick messaging, and, and we are bombarded by an incredible array of messages, mo- most of them trying to get us to buy something, but using other um, angles for that. Uh, do you look good? Are you smart? Are you doing the right thing? You know, I mean, um, you know, using sexuality, using music, using what, all these different vehicles that are used to get us to, to either be a consumer of something or to... to uh, change our view on something, and, and these views are just everywhere um, and done extremely well with a lot of money behind them. And when you are immersed in a world that, that moves quickly, that moves colorfully, um, in a world that ever more even wants to invite your participation, and then you step into a church world where you're to sit, and, and by the way, I would also say in academia, those are the two places where you sit passively and somebody pours into you. Mm. And maybe at the end you could ask a question privately to the preacher or to the, the professor. Mm-hmm. But we are, we are stuck on using the most archaic and more and more um, unreliable way to communicate the best message that's ever been out there. You know, so I think it's a bombardment uh, in our in our culture that's changed the pace and the way that people gather information to where we can't keep doing it the way we used to do it because it just becomes less and less effective. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems almost that uh, people are simply doing all they know. It's it's how they were taught. It's how they were brought up. It's it's what they've been exposed to, and it seems almost automatic that, uh, well, that, that's what you do. And the idea even to question that seems almost uh, untheological. Sure. Well, I mean, and there's a whole theology of preaching. I mean, I've read some of the books. Um, the, the, you know, there's guys who've built um, a whole 
theological and philosophical reason why why the sermon, particularly verse by verse expositional style, is really the way, it's God's way of communicating His message. And I kind of scratch my head and go, um, Have you ever spent any time watching, just analyzing how Jesus taught? It has no similarity to the way we do it. Let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, and I know you touch on that in your book as well. Uh, this whole idea of uh, how we preach today, many people will defend and say, well, I'm simply following the biblical mandate. I'm following the biblical example. Is that true? And and if not, how did Jesus communicate? Yeah, and, and you know, I mean, we don't have any real recorded sermons from Jesus or Peter or Paul. You know, the only thing we have a hint of is that Paul spoke so long once he put everybody to sleep, which apparently... <laughs> Is, it wasn't any less common in his day. But, um, but when we look at the master teacher, Jesus being the master teacher, the scriptures clearly say he taught by way of stories. That's, that's what the Bible says. Mm. And he taught them by way of stories. And he would ask questions and send people home and basically go figure. Here's a story. Go figure out what this means. And we know that because his disciples were walking around. He wouldn't even clue them in. They are scratching their heads and Brian had to pull him over and say, okay, we don't get it. Come on, help us, give us a clue. And when you see that, the kind of interactive things that he did, it's quite, it's quite uniquely different than the way we communicate ideas. I mean, just the, the guts to let people com, you know, sort it out for themselves is quite amazing. And that would be virtually heresy in most churches today to to send everybody home scratching their head going, okay, you figure out what this means. Mm. Talk amongst yourself. You know, talk on the way home. You know, have special meetings during the week. See if you can, you know, email each other. See if you can figure out what this means and what it means for everyday life. You know, I, I can't imagine most pastors being willing to do that because we want to present our concepts wrapped up with a nice little bow that you can take home with you, you know. Mm. Well, you've talked about, you've written about, and I know you've thought a lot about uh, how people actually do consume a message and retain it and hopefully incorporate it into their lives. What have you found? Well, I find, first I found that it's the more, we know this from education, um, the more tactile, excuse me, the more tactile people are, in other words, more of the senses that they're involved, uh, not just their hearing, their audio, but, but, um, they're seeing the visual, um, the, the smell, the, you know, the taste. I mean, you go down all of our senses. The more of those you engage, the higher everybody can see, the higher the retention goes. The more you participate, the higher the retention goes. The more passive, the lower the retention goes. Mm. So we all understand, um, from at least any, anybody who's, who's spent any time studying this through the educational process, we all understand what creates retention. It's how do we think imaginatively about how to do that in a church context? And, by the way, how do we push, how do we push back very gently and lovingly on not just the pastors, but, believe me, the people who have an expectation built from years and years of sitting in a pew or sitting under a lecture that this is the right way to do it. Mm. It freaks them out just as bad as it does pastors who are all of a sudden have to retool what they're doing. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, that that's, uh, that's a part of the whole package of uh, being more effective, is not only 
how we communicate, but uh, training and helping our people to understand and come along with us on uh, how to uh, not only consume, but participate in the message itself. Well, what does that look like? You've done some experimentation. You've, uh, you've stepped out of the box. You've risked. Uh, what does that look like? How have, how have you incorporated some of your thoughts into your preaching? So for, for us, it changes. It's, 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 one of the things we try to avoid is the same place, same thing routine. And frankly, you, you can't, um, if you deliver the same concept of uh, outside of lecture, after a while, that gets boring, too. So the idea is to, to mix it up and particularly to make it apt for the concept that you're, that you're dealing with, to make it the most powerful way to deliver that idea. So it changes over and over. Sometimes it's stories. Sometimes it's a video story that we've created or crafted. Sometimes it's an open-ended story that's either verbally delivered or delivered by video or printed where you have to engage with that story. So, for example, a couple weeks ago, um, there was a number of different stories uh, or situational uh, things going on that the, the congregation, the end of the message was, your homework, you have homework, um, is to discuss these things and come up with what would be the right way to, to think and act on this particular subject. And so it can involve people, and, and, you can, and I've done that as homework. I've done that where we're going to stop and do that amongst ourselves and give them a time limit. Listen, you've got pick one of these. You've got three minutes to give your impression. The next person got three minutes. And in six minutes, we're going to pick back up and see what we got. So you can use a wide variety of, of things. We've done, a, a, we've done object lessons. People take home things. They, um, not too long ago, there was a pipe cleaner in every handout when people came in. And the subject matter was on creativity and that God's a creative God. He's a creator God. That's what we were dealing with. But we started out by every, asking everybody to do something creative with their, with their pipe cleaner, to make something. And it was hilarious because, you know, one or two people just made these incredibly beautiful pieces of art. And we brought them up and showed them to everybody. And go, wow, about 50% of the people made a stupid heart, which is what I figured, because that's <laughs> like, you know, well, okay, I guess I'll bend this into a heart. And about a quarter of the people just kind of bent theirs, but it was no particular thing. They couldn't come up with anything. And we use that as a launch pad to talk about how we, when we look at each other, we always identify, well, they're the creative people. We're not. I'm not creative. And it was a launch pad to say, but actually, you may not be creative in pipe clean art, pipe cleaner art, but God might use you in a whole different creative way that you've never put into that context. So it was that sort of thing. Mm. You know, when uh, you talk about using especially some of these objects and take-home pieces and have people interact with something in their hands... I can hear some listeners now saying, well, that sounds really gimmicky to me. But I always think back to uh, how Jesus used objects and coins and fish and uh, lots of other things to help people learn. How do you help over, overcome that criticism that uh, these are just gimmicks that you're using? Well, they are gimmicks. I mean, I, I frankly say this is a gimmick. I mean, Jesus used gimmicks. Show me the coin, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, he, used, he used little gimmicks. Um, a gimmick is, is a negative way to say you're using a device to accomplish something, right? And um, I think it's a gimmick of God that, that we're using here because what is the end result of this? And I try to bring him back to this. The end, my end result is that when you drive home, 
you remember this idea, and it bounces around in your head all week long because you got involved in using this particular gimmick or because this gimmick was really ended up being really meaningful to help you understand better, you know? So no apologies for me on gimmicks. I'm, I'm a gimmick guy, and, and uh, I think God is pretty happy with the use of gimmicks. <laughs> how, how have you incorporated or responded to this uh, phenomenon that I mentioned earlier, that people who have been leaving the church have often mentioned that uh, they have felt that they have not been granted the opportunity to participate in the message, their questions are not uh, welcome, their ability to speak into the message and, and contribute to it is not allowed. How have you been able to incorporate in a Sunday morning setting allowing people to participate somehow in the message? Sure. And, and I should just say as a caveat, the ability to do that depends on the size of your congregation. If, if you're sitting with 500 or 1,000 people, unless you want to be there all day, you, you're not going to be able to pass around a mic and have everybody make the same kind of contribution. Mm-hmm. You know? um, but what one can do is one can, on, in, a large, so in a large church, you would come at it from a different angle than you would a smaller church or a house church. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's some of the advantages of a smaller church is that they can actually do some innovative things and people can have more of a participatory role. But of course, once people find that that's a really cool thing and start inviting their friends and you get to be a large church and you're back to a whole different way of doing it. But to answer your questions, there's a couple, I mean, there's more than a couple, but I'll give you a couple of different ideas. We've, um, we, we've used a service uh, and there's a number of them out there where you are able to, um, in real time, uh, throw things on the on the board. So I, um, not not too long ago, we did a deal where people just put up prayer requests. We we're just going to have a, a season of prayer, uh, but they would flash up onto the board, right, under the screen, at, from your phone. You type it in on your phone. You send it to this number, and bang, it just it just popped up. Uh, we've also done that with, with things that people um, were thankful for. I remember on Thanksgiving Eve service, we just did a shower of, of Thanksgiving, and people participated, and you saw all these different things going up on the screen as people typed them into their phone, and, and bang, they flashed them. That's one way to get people involved. Another way in a larger group setting is um, to, in advance, ask people to share their vantage point on a particular idea. And so you can say, well, listen, you know, we're going we're gonna to look at this idea, but, but we have three or four people that are just regular people. And I like to videotape them because uh, in a large group, sometimes it's when you hand somebody a microphone, they either freeze or forget, or sometimes they think, oh boy, now I got a microphone. I can just keep going. And so I prefer to videotape them and they pop up on these little videos of people talking about it, but they're sitting right there Mm. and we identify them. But that way we can help them be able to say what they want to say and even edit out the ums and ahs and yeah. some of that kind of stuff. So, and because we, we have multiple services, so we have to, we have a clock we have to deal with, you know? Mm-hmm. Is so, that uh, what you describe in the book, uh, stories from the red chair? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Tell us about the red stories, chair. The, stories from the red chair is just people in the church that have a great story to tell. And we try to tie that story into, uh, a message that we're that that we're coupling together, and uh, 
So you can see how this idea works, it out, it works itself out in real life. So it might have been somebody who's gone through a tragedy. For example, we had a gal um, uh, whose she and her husband came to Christ because her son was murdered. And, you know, how God took a tragedy and used it to bring them to close to him. That was really, really powerful, you know. Um, and we just, we, we have a, we've hired a storyteller that helps us do that. He's a video guy. And we have set up a room in the church. It's a studio. Um, and when I was at group, I, I started lusting and coveting over your studio, so I had to leave very quickly. <laughs> but, but we set up a studio, and we, can, we just plop guys down in the red chair, and we tell these little stories. And then we disseminate them. I mean, they go on, on our Facebook accounts, and, and uh, they get passed around to people because you never know who might have gone through something really rugged. That story, maybe they didn't hear at church, but when they hear it, they go, whoa, mm. okay, God, God does take the horrible things and squeeze something good out of them. Mm. You know, back to uh, your reference to the large church, you know, uh, I often hear that too, but uh, I've, I've got to say that uh, in uh, some of the speaking that I've done with uh, very large groups, thousands of people, 5,000 people in a uh, uh, stadium-type setting where uh, I've uh, uh, enabled everybody to participate and talk, and that's simply done by, uh, I think, what you refer to in the book as peer-to-peer interaction, where you pose a question for people to turn to someone next to them and uh, answer that that question, and that allows all five thousand to participate. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, and you know, um, that that sort of was a you know a no-brainer for me to think of that one. Just hey, turn to your neighbor and let's talk about this, and and man, the whole room takes off. And sometimes the hardest thing is getting everybody back because they want to just keep <laughs> talking, um, and and having the questions that are that are both meaningful, but also not necessarily you know show us where you hide your money and what your social security sure. I mean, that you, you have to be smart about the questions you ask because you don't want to alienate people, particularly people that are new with you, and, and that kind of stuff freaks them out. So it has to be something that um, helps them get to know that person a little better and see their vantage point on something without starting a fist fight. Yeah. You know, another idea that you talk about in your book uh, that I found fascinating is uh, real-time polling and straw polling. How do you do that? What does that look like? Well, like I said, there's um, different com- companies that you can use, uh, and you can actually have them vote on an idea or vote on something using, again, their cell phone, and they can actually, um, in real time, you see what people think about stuff. How many or you see what they ex- ex- have experienced, um, and so they, they can they can actually feel like they're participating in the conversation by giving their opinion on something. Mm. You just set it up, and um, uh, again, there's a number of just, I I don't have it at my access, you might have it in front of you, but um, uh, there's a couple different uh, polling things that you can do. Mm -hmm. I think it's poll everywhere. That's what it is. Real-time polling is poll everywhere, I Mm -hmm. believe, is the guys that we used. And you can do that, or a straw poll. Um, You can just ask people, to, to vote on it, and again, in real time, and project what they, what they do on the screen. So you can get their opinions, you can get um, ideas of what, you know, even like a test. You know, how many of you agree with this? How many agree with that? So different ways. And people, when people get a chance to participate, they, they not only feel valued, but 
doggone it, it's, it, they remember the concept because mm. they've been involved in it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think one of the fears that people have, uh, preachers and teachers, in using some of these techniques, particularly that are unpredictable, you don't know what people are going to say, you don't know how a poll is going to turn out, I think a fear that people have is that, uh, well, what if I don't have the answer? What if I don't know how to respond to what comes up? So I, I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to stick with my canned remarks that uh, I know I can prepare in advance and I'm not going to have to wing it. Uh, right, and... How- and, and- of course, there's a, the other fear is that it's going to get away from me. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, this can go south, and then what do I do? You know, um, if if people if suddenly people um, don't respond the way I anticipated them responding, how am I going to how am I going to get out of that? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's why you know you think about you think about the worst case scenario as you're building these things and say, okay, if this doesn't go if this doesn't go the way I want it. What's my response? And it's not too hard to come up with it. Mm-hmm. A, a um, graceful way to get out of a mess mm-hmm. if you anticipate the mess. You know, and I think uh, sometimes we need to give people the freedom to know that uh, they can say, well, I don't know. Well, let's work on this together. Mm-hmm. One of the things that came out of our research with the Duns is that uh, people today are really leery of uh, people up front who seem to have all the answers, who seem to have it all together. And that just reeks of a lack of authenticity. And people find it refreshing, I think, when uh, they see that uh, someone is hit from something, hit with something that uh, hits them out of the blue, and uh, they don't have a pat answer for, but uh, they've got a willingness to work with everyone on it together. Right. And that takes a special kind of leader, though. Now, we're actually almost talking about a different subject in a sense. Because a leader who's willing to be transparent and to say, I don't have all the answers. Mm. I know you expect me to, but you got the wrong guy. Um, if you want all the answers, go to the Internet. <laughs> those, those people are, are hard. That's hard. That's a hard thing for a lot of pastors because they are expected to have all the answers. I mean, and it's almost re-educating people as well as pastors and giving them permission to be fallible mm. and um that's that's a very difficult thing, which again circles back around to why a lot of pastors want total control from the front, because they want to be able to have studied and give all the right answers mm. from up front and have no surprises. Rick, if uh, if people are listening to this and and saying, "Hey, I I I'm sold on uh, these kinds of of changes or these kinds of concepts, and I want to help move my congregation." or my, my group, my class, or whatever it is in, in this direction. How do you suggest uh, that people start? Is it, is it uh, a matter of turning the switch overnight? No, and, and, and that's where one has to be really cautious. And I think it's, it's kind of like wading into a pool that you've never been in. You just don't jump into the deep end because very likely you'll drown and everybody will flip out. Mm. And, and again, we're talking about changing something that has a long, long long tradition and expectation from both pastorals and fellow pastors and as well as the congregants, what they're used to. Mm. And so one has to proceed to that very carefully. And, and probably the easiest way to do it, because it's more and more acceptable, is start telling stories using videos, you know, slipping those things in, um, experimenting with maybe breaking up the order, working with your worship guys so that um, maybe you talk 
or present for five minutes, like a little short TED Talk, and you build a song that actually reinforces that concept. And so everybody, you know, working with the worship guy, they they might sing a song like that and then come back and, and give another short concept that is reinforced by a video or vice versa. A video shows up that reinforces the concept even again. Um, you can begin to, to tinker around with how we how we uh, present, but if you do have people interact, you go on a very benign, what's your favorite color type of thing to start them off, because most people can handle that. Mm. Um, or, you know, you pick a season where um, people are joyously want to, want to share. So, for example, at Christmas, um, what's one family tradition that you guys have? And, you have people talk about that. Uh, and, of course, it needs to dovetail into your message or into the concept you're trying to communicate. Mm. But you, you pick things that are gentle to start with and don't plunge them into the – and you begin to slowly get them used to it. And, and then you begin introduce this, introduce that, and uh, and before long people people will buy in. But if you if you go too quickly uh, and too deeply, you'll all you get is pushback. Mm. You know, another thing that I think is helpful is simply to be transparent with people and let them know why you're making some of these changes. Sure. That sure. we found that uh, people will learn more, uh, gain more, retain more, and uh, be able to to really be refreshed by what God has for them uh, that day. And so we're just going to try some things, and and uh, that's that's why you're seeing some of the changes, so that people understand uh, why some of these things are coming along. Right. I even, I even when we first started this, I asked them to humor me. I said, I'm gonna tr- I want to try something really, you're going to think it's dumb, and we might all agree at the very end it's dumb, but I, I just I want you to humor me on this. And I remember what it was. I, I, I handed everybody a Dr. Pepper can. Mm. Uh, full of Dr. Pepper, mm-hmm. and there, the object was is to drag this thing around because the big picture concept I was talking about is how we carry things around that, that uh, in our lives that, that take up space. We don't really use them, but we just drag them around with us that, that uh, God wants us to travel light um, and get rid of some of those burdens that so easily you know, tangle us up. So um, I told a story about how I drug a Dr. Pepper can with me, actually a bunch of them, so I could enjoy them on this gnarly backpacking trip that I went on in the high Sierras. And when it came down to, to drink them, I looked up and everybody wanted some of my Dr. Pepper. So I carried all this stuff up for everybody and got, in, got very little out of it myself. And, and, uh, and then I passed out Dr. Pepper cans. And I said, You're, you know, I want you to do something really dumb. I want you to take this with you. Just put it in your car, but you, but you can't drink it till next Sunday. But you just carry it around with you. Put it on your desk. And let it just be a reminder of the stuff that you got to carry around that, that really isn't helpful. And you can't believe how many people actually carried the thing around you know, for a whole week because <laughs> we asked him. But I, but I pleaded with him that, it was, that I was asking him to, to just humor me, to do something mm. that might seem dumb. But at the end of the week, they go, you know, that really made that message stick because I carried that stupid Dr. Pepper can mm. with me all week. And so by approaching it, you know, kind of humbly, like – like I'm just, I want to try something with you guys. Will you, will you experiment with me? Everybody went along with it. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, Rick Bunchu, thank you. Uh, the book is called Moving Messages, and it's available at bookstores, online retailers, and on uh, Kindle format as well. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, and uh, I hope, 
hope next Sunday will be a little different than the regular Sunday. Yeah, for, for sure. Everybody listen to this. <laughs> and uh, Holy Soup listeners, be sure to uh, take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and the blog and get your regular serving of roasted sacred cows. See you next time on Holy Soup. <laughs>